Hey everyone, welcome to 15 Minutes. Here's a little uh, re-edit, reboot, director's cut of my conversation from back in 2017 with Michael Ian Black. Originally, it was split up into two episodes with me ranting about the uh, injustices of the day at the beginning of each, so I thought I'd make a nice pure one. I hope you enjoy it, and I wish you a happy New Year 2020. And coming up in January, we'll have podcaster and podcast mogul and many other things, Jesse Thorne. Talk to you then. Actor, author, stand-up comedian, tweeter extraordinaire, and host of the How to Be Amazing podcast. We talk about everything from our moms, to Twitter, to his decades-long love feud with Mark Marin, and much, much more. We recorded way back on August 31st via Skype, so you won't hear anything about Harvey Weinstein or Louis C.K. for the rest of the hour. Hello, Michael Ian Black. Hello. I want to start by saying condolences for your mom. Oh, thank you. It'll be nine years since my mom died. And uh, after finishing the book, after, you know, after hearing that, uh, it seems like they were uh, similar influences on us. I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know the strength of her influence entirely, but... Uh, since she died, I feel like it's becoming clearer to me, and uh, and uh, the it's uh, yeah it's a, it's 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 a confusing and complex thing to go through losing a parent. I lost my dad when I was twelve, and now my mom just died, and uh, the differences the differences between those two experiences are are fairly stark, and uh, both because of my relationships with those different parents and also just the time in my life uh, between being a 12-year-old and being a 45-year-old, uh, just very different experiences and um, unsettling in different ways and, uh, and complex in different ways. I think I remember you talking to someone about how you were just coming to have a relationship with your dad when he died, but it sounds yeah. like you've had a a very close one with your mom since then uh you know our mom, they're just they're just some kind of funny uh commonalities and you know, my mother wasn't a lesbian but she became divorced and only had lesbian friends the rest of her life who tried to seduce her uh for most of my young adult life well she was probably gay and just didn't tell you no she really wasn't i mean her, her friends and I, I mean i would be all for setting her up with them and the, another parallel is that at one point she did slip that she didn't think I was gay, but that <laughs> it, it would have been more comfortable for her. Uh, it, it would have been easier as a feminist. Well, my mom definitely thought I was gay in the early part of my life and uh, uh, sat me down to tell me so. And for her, it was the opposite. She didn't want me to be gay. She really was worried that I was gay, not because... 
she thought that uh, it would make my life so much more difficult. Um, and at the time, this is the mid eighties when she thought that, uh, you know, AIDS was really at its apex in terms of a, a health crisis. And in addition to the homophobia and everything else, she just really was concerned, um, that I was gay and, and, and supportive in, in the sense that, you know, she said, I'll, I'll still love you. And I mean, this is from my gay mom saying she'll still love me if I'm gay. Um, as it happens, I'm not. And, 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 and at the time I knew I was not. To give my mom credit, I don't think she wanted me to have any of the, the, the trials and burdens of, of struggling as a gay person. And I'm about maybe seven years older than you are. And it was pre AIDS crisis. Uh, and there was just a moment when I was like, mom, for me, my mom was that person. I, I wanted, you know, the attention and praise from first and foremost uh, in my life. And when you, in the beginning of, um, of navel gazing and at the end, talk about her, write about her, um, saying she wasted her life. And initially <laughs> you felt a little pang, you know, somewhat comical, but a little pang of what do you, what the fuck you made this, um, there is some of that, uh, you know, I, my mom also, you know, she, she wasn't a professor, but she was an adjunct her whole life. And she took a huge, you know, and she started really late because of me. And so I was a big thing that she was very involved in, in the success of. And there are times when I wish she had lived a little longer to see me do more stuff because she's my first audience, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I just, I was wondering whether that was important to you and whether she appreciated what you did, whether she read this book. She did read the book, Naval Gazing. Um, I couldn't have published it without her. Well, first of all, I interviewed her for the book. So she, she was aware of the book and I, I couldn't, uh, in good conscience, publish it without her reading it. It didn't necessarily mean I would change anything, but I wanted her to be aware of what was in it. She really didn't have any objections to it. Um, although I felt, although I felt a sense of urgency in terms of her health, her fading health, it was unclear at the time that I was writing it. And when it was published, um, that her death was imminent in any way, because she had been kind of dying for 15, 16 years at that point. I mean, she, she was in slow decline ever since a cancer diagnosis uh, in 1999 or 2000. And there had been a number of, I don't want to say false alarms, but a number of times where we thought, oh, this, this, this could get really bad. And so having survived many of those, I think I felt like um, I want to do this now. I want to write this book now and I want to interview her now, but I don't necessarily think I'm racing the clock here. And as it turns out, I wasn't. I mean, that whole process of, of conceiving the book, writing it and publishing it was probably three years. Um, and then the book was out for another year, maybe before she finally died. It was important for me to um, not so much to get her, story out there, although I think she has a compelling story, it was important for me to just work with her and work on these interviews together and 
I don't know why, just because she's my mom and I wanted her to, I wanted to have that connection. When you were doing Stella in the State, your deepest, most loyal fan base seems to me to be those, those people who just really have stuck with you. I'm a new fan, and, and it's mostly started with the podcast. And you have become my most clear idea of what I'd like the show to be in that you're always you, and you have a, you, you going from Katy Perry to Cecile Richards to Doug Stanhope, it, and you do it really well, and there's enough of you, and there's enough of you just letting them be them. And that, that's kind of, I think it's a great show. And so I just wanted to say that. Thanks. I appreciate that very much. And you also seem, as compared to some people, either you or you have someone good working with you, you do your fucking homework. And that's something that frustrates me about other people sometimes, you know. Uh, and I'll get to later on. I'll, maybe I'll bring up one particular. Uh, I, I'm not going to badmouth anybody except for myself in this interview. Although I might badmouth Mark Maron just just because, just because, no reason. Right, and I know you two both seem to enjoy it, <laughs> and I have. It may be like because I'm brand new to to the drama. I only learned it all and listened to all the the historical documents. Uh, this past week, I am super fascinated, and I think your two interviews are amazing <laughs> radio. So later, I will tell you my theory, and if afterwards you're like, I don't want this in there, I always oh, well, that's that nice. I uh, I would never ask you not to include something that I said in an interview because I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm mindful of that, unless I just say something incorrect. At this point, sorry, this is Jamie cutting in. Three months later, at this point, Michael and I started talking about politics, and I did a lot of yammering on, which I think you've had enough of at the beginning of the show today. At least I've had enough of. And so I'm just telling you here, we started in and we ended up talking about his very, very active wars against MAGA Trump scumbag trolls on Twitter that he engages in every single day and how and why he does that. I've thought a lot about this issue and I have uh, exerted a great amount of effort on this issue on Twitter and decided ultimately, not even ultimately, decided right away that it was impossible to not take a position uh, against this person because as, uh, well, as an American, but also as a Jew, I just feel a special responsibility to stand up for minorities and people who are maybe being scapegoated. So during the campaign, that was Muslims and that was Mexicans and that was whomever uh, was being targeted that particular day. And uh, since the election, that now means gay people and it means Jews, unfortunately, and it means African-Americans, uh, it means women, it means, you know, standing up essentially for everybody. And it's, uh, it's exhausting. Um, but it, I also think it's necessary. So I've become a much less funny person, uh, on Twitter and maybe in my life because so much of my brain is devoted to trying to, 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 to speak out. And in terms of like feeling physically threatened, 
I have not felt that way, although I think like a lot of prominent people on social media, um, I've received threats, uh, implicit and explicit. Um, and my wife was concerned about it, but I just, and she really wanted me to stop. And I did, um, sort of modify the way I interacted online and we got into fights about it. And I think that was, that was, that's the intent of this kind of harassment is to divide. Um, but ultimately, you know, I tried to explain this to her, like, it's not really possible for me to stop. Uh, it's not really possible for me to silence myself on these issues because I feel a responsibility and the responsibility is greater than, than myself. Um, because, because of just because of culturally where I come from. I've never felt more, I mean, I was, I'm certainly a Pratheist child of atheists, <laughs> uh, Pratheist being your term. Uh, I've never felt more Jewish. Yeah. I, I mean, in, in my book, I describe Pratheism as, uh, uh, something like praying to a God I don't believe in, uh, and if I ever hear a response, I'll deny that it ever happened. Something like, that. Uh, you know, the, the the idea of being torn between atheism, theism, and agnosticism, and not really knowing where you fall on that scale, um, but being unwilling to commit to to any of them. Uh, that's sort of how I feel. And, and and the Judaism component of it, I think, like a lot of Jews, it's. Uh, it's cultural, you know, as much as anything, or maybe more than anything. It's it it is a cultural identif identifier, and uh, maybe that identifier means a, a host of things to different people. But I think one thing Jews all share in common is a historical memory of very recent events that preclude us from sitting idly by while people are being persecuted. It's just not possible. It's not possible, and I also feel much more like. I live in a, in a in a rural Western Massachusetts town, so you, there will be you know more. There are more Trump voters in my midst. There are more acquaintances who are, and I feel more Jewish to them as well. Changing to a much lighter topic, the Katy Perry episode. Was there a, a different feeling in talking to her, or was she just a, a, a human being? Um, there was a different feel for a variety of reasons. Uh, part of it was that it was on her turf. Um, it was in LA at a, uh, kind of manufactured pseudo, uh, environment that she was doing marketing for her album out of. So, and it was all very organized and, and very, um, handled in a way that made me uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, when I talked to her, she was lovely. I mean, she's, you know, she, she's a very pleasant person. Um, but there was definitely a performative aspect of that interview that I was trying to break through. Uh, and it wasn't easy. I don't know that I succeeded either. And which you generally do very well with when I started to listen to the beginning of, and this is just getting to inside podcast baseball, but Cecile Richards, I was like, wow, that, that is just a, that I, I was, I was afraid that your you know, uh, all the words people use to describe you that I've heard you have conversations with 
Pete Holmes with Mark, you know, be, uh, being sarcastic or whatever. You didn't turn it off. And you didn't turn off the funny because this is a serious guest. And it worked. Well, that's nice. Thanks. Well, I was nervous about speaking with her because I didn't know how uh, serious whether she would be, whether she would be right. Um, you know, sometimes with political people in particular, they come in with an agenda, which isn't a bad thing, by the way. I'm not saying that's I don't I don't I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they have an agenda. Um, and sometimes that agenda can get in the way of their just personality. And she wasn't like that at all. She was very um, down home is how I would describe her. She's from Texas and and was game. Which was great. Which was good. It made it it made my job a lot easier. Oh, why is this show called How to Be Amazing? Because uh, when my producers and I were conceiving of the show, we wanted to talk to people about their creative process, and uh, we didn't know what to call it. And when we were um, in the early stages of it, we went to see Ira Glass uh, just to get his advice on how to do podcasts. Um, and we described the show to him and he said, uh, do you have a title for it? And I think at the time we were kind of calling it Backstory and he goes, oh, that's a terrible title. Uh, it really sounds more like a How to Be Amazing show. And I said, well, that's a good title. Can we use that? And he said, sure. Nice. He's very good at such things and he's very willing to express his opinion uh i was out i actually happened to go out to dinner with him and some people after a show at uh, uh in new york and i told him about the podcast and he was like why would anybody want to listen to that <laughs> <laughs> and since then i've emailed him and tried to like i sent him the david sedaris episode because it's someone he knows and likes but he also was like so incredibly afraid of talking about himself as famous and he said he hates interviewing famous people and so he's got a lot to say about fame oh i'm sure he does i think yes but he doesn't want to think it's interesting uh i was going to say to you if you're i i'm pretty sure you're one of three people who wouldn't claim not to be a degree of famous uh in the 45 or so so far but if you did i was going to say claim that You've played poker with Star Jones on TV, so you are famous. Well, it would be it would be disingenuous to to say that I don't have any fame. Of course, I do. Yes. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a lot, but but it's some. Yeah, it's definitely some, and uh, it's just funny how people want to run away from it. Well, I think there's a I think the sense that people have, famous people have, is that it's uh, that they're bragging or something say you're famous. The first person I ever met who expressed that, I, when I first got on TV, my very first real TV show was called The State on MTV. And after our first season, right, kind of right after we were breaking on TV, and this was in the early 90s when MTV really was a, a pretty powerful platform, um, we, uh, some friends and I from The State decided to leverage our new fame uh, into uh, sleeping with girls. And the way we did this was we, we got a van and we decided to travel across the country and, and stop at different college towns where there would be people who watched our show who would then want to sleep with us. 
in my case, it didn't work out very well at all. However, uh, one evening we were in Athens, Georgia, and uh, somebody pointed out that Michael Stipe was in the bar. And I don't even remember how we ended up talking, but he said to me and probably my friends who I was with, uh, are, he goes, are you a TV star? And I go, no, no, no. Are you a rock star? And he goes, yeah. I was like, yeah, that's right. You are. And you're owning it. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a couple of people talk to me about how, you know, even owning your, your local town fame, both a, a great um, solo talker, podcaster, radio guy, Hardy White, about being being famous in your own town for being in the band. Mm -hmm. Don't just go for it, man. And the other person was, uh, well, George Saunders was talking about the band he was in before he went to college. Oh, Interesting. But satirical fame is something that you have. You're one of three people who I can think of who have spent time coming in and out of, you know, playing around with that. The other two are Hodgman and as an all around expert and Neil Pollock, the writer as the greatest and most macho American writer. Yours takes it really to the level of extreme superficiality and that you're famous for being famous as as you know, as a on air personality person. Right. That yeah, that all started with um, the state when I was in. I was really interested and continue to be interested in um, mythology and the kind of personas that people create for themselves, um, the way they kind of want to present themselves to the world or the the way they want the world to see them. And so I invented this character called the on-air personality. Initially. Uh, it was just going to be me, Michael Ian Black, and I, and and those pieces all begin with me going, "Hi, I'm an on-air personality." Initially, they were written to be, "Hi, I'm Michael Ian Black," and the other guys in the group and girl in the group were like, "No, you can't do that because we don't, uh, we don't talk about ourselves that way," and so you can't do those pieces. And I'm like, "Well, what if I just change it to, hi, 'Hi, I'm an on-air personality,' and they're like, fine." Um, and it was just this sort of, you know, conceited. Uh, persona that I then spent years kind of working on and with and through uh, to the point where I felt like it was becoming very constraining and confining. And I really needed to, to shed that. I still do it to some extent. I mean, my, I, I, my first two albums were, one was called very famous and one Notice, noted expert, because it's just funny to me. It's just funny to me. The the you know sometimes people will come up to me and say, "Are you famous?" And and the question itself is so ludicrous because if you have to ask the question, then the answer is obviously no, <laughs> no. Um, but at the same time, they clearly recognize you from something. So uh, my instinct now is to say yes, yes, I'm very famous, <laughs> or. I was at a restaurant the other day and the waitress said, said something like, how do I know you? And which is an, another annoying question because I have no idea other than she's, I'm sure she's seen me on TV. And so the only response I, I, I could muster was I'm a very famous television star or something like that. Uh, fortunately she laughed. <laughs> Good. Yes. It, it seems like in terms of what you do now, from what I've, 
scene. I haven't, I, I didn't have the heart to go back and read a child's first book of Trump because as a, your editor, you said recently about a, a follow-up book said, it's just not funny anymore. So someday I'll go read that, but I don't know what you're like as that person, but, uh, it seems like the only place you've kept it is in your standup. Yeah, and I still I still do make those jokes in my standup. Um, I mean, it's clearly to me so self-deprecating. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily always clear to the audience. Uh, I would hope, but but uh, you know, I'm 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 playing some comedy club in Spokane, Washington, for 150 people. It would be absurd for me to talk about my level of fame as being anything other than modest. Recently, I interviewed a very young comic whose first album just came out, Josh Johnson. Nice guy. And I listened to a lot of his stuff, and the difference between his persona and himself was pretty... It was interesting, because he wasn't not being himself on stage, but he a lot of his material... On stage, he played, I'm the, I'm the theater nerd, you know, and it, it was it, funny. But then, as we were talking, he starts talking about the Conor McGregor, the big fight. And I don't know what he's talking about. And I almost called him out on it, but I didn't. But the only reason I bring that up is because I, is the Mbop bit shtick? Is it, or is it really true? Do you love Mbop? I love it. No. I mean, <laughs> not only do I love it, I think it's one of the best pop songs written in the last 25 years. I think it's fantastic. All right. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I love it. And sometimes people say when I'm doing a show, is there any particular music you'd like to come out to? And when they ask the question, I always say Mbop. There's always a pause. And then the person goes, seriously? Mm -hmm. Say yes, seriously. Well, I'm sure one or two people out there who listen to this will be really psyched to hear that. Oh, probably three or four. Okay. But not, not five. <laughs> no, not five. Uh, but as many as four people will be like, I love Mbop too. Yes. This is for you, people. <laughs> Career question. You do so many different things. If you had to pick one of them to focus on for five years, acting, stand-up, writing memoir and, and other writing, uh, the podcast, if it could make you a full living, what, what would you pick? Well, I'd pick different things for different reasons. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to... It's hard to... No, I mean the thing that the thing that the, the thing that maybe gives me the most pleasure right now. Well, that's not even true. I don't know. I like them all. I like them all for different reasons. Um, you know, it would be great if I knew, for example, that I had an acting job for five years, uh, like on a network show, where I didn't even really have to think. It was just showing up, having, uh, you know doing some scenes, having a free lunch, going home and collecting a fat paycheck, I would be very happy to do that for the next five years. Um, with, 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 the, with, the, with the full knowledge that at the end of those five years, uh, I would then have enough money in the bank that I could go write a novel or devote myself to the podcast or do whatever. You mean uh, five years of being, as you put it the, uh, recently, number seven on the call list? nothing better. I mean, I could take, I, I would go as high as number five, number four in a pinch, but that there's a sweet spot between like number five and number seven. That's just ideal.
I was talking to to um, Bobby Tisdale, who plays Zeke on Bob's Burgers, and he seems like that is a nice, sweet. I'm sure he'd like Bob uh, Zeke to be a little bigger. Well, the nice thing about animation is you really, I mean, for those guys, they show up, they record it in what an afternoon or something. That I, I would be, I would be happy to be number one on that call sheet. Uh, but not in, not in any live action thing where you're in every scene and you're solving the crime. I don't want to solve the crime. It, I heard the word novel there. Yeah. Is that a, th- is that a thing? Is there a, no- is there a novel that's been in your, the back of your head? Is there a, well, th- th- that is very much a bucket list thing for me. The, um, the, the reason I, I mean, I've always wanted to write a novel. I don't know that I'm capable of it. And, uh, I would say writing the memoirs that I've written uh, are more or less, not more or less, but are, 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 I look at them as, as a education and self-education in terms of like how to learn how to write with the idea that at some point it would be nice to apply that education to writing something uh, fictional. As someone who's been overschooled in writing, when I read you, and I would think you might have gone to graduate school for writing at one point. I know you didn't. Did you learn as a reader? I feel like maybe someone who's read a lot of Sedaris and had a really good editor and has good thoughts and has a general, you know, skill at writing. How have you learned how to, you know, you just started writing. Just like you said, when you were offered to do stand-up, you just did it. How did you write these books? Well, the first book I wrote was a collection of essays, sort of fictional, dumb essays, a lot of which were, I mean, and, and they all played around with, uh, voice and tone. Um, I think they were mostly first person. Um, and it was the last, I didn't want to write that book. Like when I, when I got a, uh, an offer to write a book, I was sort of like, I want to do anything except that. And the reason I didn't want to do that was because it felt like cheating to me because I felt like I knew how to write 500 to a thousand word dumb essays. Yeah. And a lot of funny people put out that book. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. Ultimately what I realized was I, I kind of needed to, as a first step, as a kind of dipping my toe in the water, just to, I needed to, 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 to write in order to learn how to write. And so yeah. I felt like that was very much like my introduction introduction to writing, um, writing prose. I mean, I've been writing sketches and screenplays and whatever else. And then the next book was a memoir. I didn't want to write a memoir, um, but it was the same thing. It, it just felt like it, both because I needed to shed this persona that we talked about and because I needed to write something longer form that I could write, um, it was kind of the only thing that it was possible for me to write. And so I wrote it. And then the the book, the following book, that, that first memoir was about relationships, romantic relationships. And in writing that, I felt like I was sort of short shrifting um, this other important relationship that I have in my life, which was with my mom. And so I sort of felt like I had to write that. Um, and now I don't feel like I have to write anything. And so I'm hoping that I can, I can take that knowledge and, and devote it to something entirely new. 
So you're you're waiting for the muse to. I mean, I'm always uh, I'm always in communication with the muse. Hey everyone, here's where I broke the episode in two back in 2017, and there's no good way to get you from there to where we're about to start up again, except by saying, speaking of transitions, your dad's toenails. My toenails. My dad has the toenails. I haven't gotten the toenails yet. Right. Uh, right. I had uh, uh, the, the fungus, whatever that's called, on my toenails. In writing the book, uh, I finally got it dealt with. Oh, he never, he tried. Nobody ever could cure it for him. Well, I think there's medications now that, uh, oral medications that, that take care of it. So uh, when, when I first asked about it, I was advised not to take it because it's hard on the liver. But then when I went to see my doctor a few years ago, she was like, yeah, you're, you're healthy. It, it, will, it will be fine. And so she gave me the medication. You take it for I don't know how long. And then uh, as your toenails grow out, they grow in clear. I, I now have pretty, pretty clear toenails. It's, I can wear Birkenstocks now. <laughs> but you don't have to. <laughs> oh, no, I have to. Uh, I can wear flip-flops. I can I can go barefooted on the beach without remorse. Uh, I can't take off my shirt because I'm morbidly obese. But the rest of it, I also feel morbidly obese. But we're both lying, right? When my mom here's I'm gonna I'm gonna digress with one little mom story. My mom was always so was always like a little too involved in when I had a little belly because I just genetically I grow a little belly, skinny guy, a little belly, and she would pat it or she would make some little comment. And when she was dying. She took me into her room and to, like to have a real conversation. She said, "Honey, when I die, you're probably gonna gain some weight." <laughs> I swear to God. And she said, "And that's okay." <laughs> and it was a very oddly moving moment. It was kind of like her acknowledging, you know, that. But the problem is, I've only gained weight for those nine years. <laughs> <laughs> so. Having been someone who just dove into you and Mark's ongoing conversation over the years, have you? I 2013 is the last thing I found. The Gothamist thing is that the last time you guys have talked? And this is Mark Maron I'm talking about audience. Oh, I'm sure we've spoken since then. Mm -hmm. uh, we I tweeted at him recently. Oh, oh, I said that I I I grudgingly grudgingly had to admit that he's very good in Glow. <laughs> On that Netflix show. Yeah. And he just, you know, he, he responded the way he does. Yeah. Thanks, pal. <laughs> I, I grudgingly admit that he's good in things all the time. Um, okay. So here's my theory that may be incredibly dumb that would solve everything. Although there's also part of me that thinks that you two in 1993 were like, let's do a bit for the rest <laughs> of our lives. So I could be being played for a sucker here. No, he would he wouldn't talk to me in 1993. Okay. Okay. Starting at about so in 1993 you were about how old? 22 and he was about 29? Sure. 28? Yeah. So a little little older. Wait, but I'll get to that. Starting around in around 10 minutes in the 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 WTF episode which for my money you two <laughs> is amazing radio. Thank you. Um uh so starting at around 10 minutes, he says, I'm kind of paraphrasing, I was typing it quickly, back when we were coming to, to Luna, 
I was a sweaty, defensive, hostile Jew, and you were doing your thing. Doing my what thing? Just you were doing your thing. Uh-huh. Which seems to suggest something contrary to being a sweaty, hostile Jew. And then a couple minutes later, he asks you your background, and you tell him you're a Jew, 100% Jewish, and from New Jersey, and he can't believe it. <laughs> I think he saw you as... And it was, it was, you know, it was 93 or whatever, right? I'm, I'm going to use an offensive word. He saw you as a younger, handsome, skinny, faggy wasp who was coming in and not telling jokes and getting all the attention and all the girls. I think if he could say that to you and say, yes, I thought all of those things about you and they were, they were wrong, then I think you, you would ruin your bit and you'd, you'd be friends forever. <laughs> well... I mean, since that conversation, uh, we certainly have not been friends forever. Although, we, I will say that we get along much better now than we ever did uh, before I was on his podcast. Um, yeah, I don't think that's wrong. He, he, he saw me as, um, I think he thought I was entitled in some way, privileged, and that couldn't have been further from the truth. I mean, I think he saw me maybe the way some people see like John Mulaney, this sort of like confident young kid uh, who's getting a lot of attention. And the truth is like his perception of me could not have jived less with my perception of myself. I certainly didn't think I was getting attention. I certainly didn't think I was getting laughs and I certainly wasn't getting girls. I was getting some girls, but probably no more than him. But, you know, and he will, he will, he, I think he, he would admit he felt like it was him against the world and I happened to be in the world. Um, and so it was him against me. I found it um, upsetting because I, I really thought he was smart and interesting and a good comic uh, and, a, and a good personality. Um, and I wanted his respect. And, and I, you know, to this day, I don't think I have it, which is just fine. I've come to terms with that. Yeah. You were talking about, um, his, 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 his needing, uh, in his later years, what's the word you use? Uh, not redemption, uh, making amends. Um, and, and I feel like he wants to make amends. But the place he's come is to the place of wanting to make amends, but he's still not that good at yeah, it. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard for everybody. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I was going to say I feel like I occupy the moral high ground with Mark, but I don't. I'm such a dick to him. Oh, no. You're, yeah, you're a dick, too. I mean, the last sentence of that episode is amazing. You are leading up to, I can find it verbatim, you're getting to the point where he's like, he's like, I don't know, are, are we good? And you're like, oh, shit. And he's like, I don't, I don't feel like we're good. And, and you start to say something really kind of warm and fuzzy. And then you get to, when you die... <laughs> Beat, beat, beat. I'll feel good. <laughs> it's amazing. It, it, it's so mean and wonderful. Uh, uh, so that that's why I think it's great. Um, but I feel like it, it, him against the world and him against his own internalized anti-Semitism. That he was a sweaty Jew and you were a pretty non-Jew. And fairly, fair, I was fairly sweaty as well and, and remain fairly sweaty just as a emotionally. I'm emotionally sweaty. I have very good uh, HVAC where I am, but emotionally. 
as a Jew, you need that, but emotionally very sweaty. You're both very good at being mean to each other. Um, it, it, and you know that it, that in the end, you're both going to be fine with it in, like, in an hour. I would never go after somebody that I felt like couldn't take it. And Marin can take it. Marin can dish it. Uh, and, you know, it comes, ultimately, it comes from a place of love might be too strong a word. But maybe not. Maybe it's not too, too strong a word. Um, I, I, I do want, uh, I want him to be happy and at peace. Um, and I think, and I think he's getting there. Yes. The Gothamist phone call you had a couple years, uh, four years ago, I guess, really, I felt that at the end. And I think you both felt better at the end. Uh, did he really know you, you remember this, that it seemed like he didn't know you were the person going to be calling him. He was getting a call from Gothamist. Oh, uh, I don't remember whether he knew or not. Wait, I'm looking it up. Because if you listen to it, that's the way it seems. You call me like, hi, this is Michael. And you guys had just had a Twitter battle. <laughs> and Gothamist thought I'd be good to call you. And he says, really? <laughs> and, then, and then it starts right in. He says, you do what you got to do, Michael. Hey, everybody. Jamie cutting in here three months after the fact. Here's the beginning of that Gothamist interview. And you can find it just by Googling Mark Maron, Michael Ian Black, Gothamist, just to give you a bit of a flavor of their conversations. And you can also search for uh, their hour-plus convert long conversation on uh, Mark Maron's WTF podcast. Mark? Yeah? Can you hear me? I can. Good. Uh, this is Michael Ian Black from Gothamist. I'll be interviewing you today. They what? Saw that we, yeah, they saw that we were beefing on Twitter yesterday, so they suggested that I interview you. And I said, fuck, I'll do that. I'll annoy him. That's fine, Michael. You do what you have to do. It's not about what I have to do. It's what I choose to do, because I want to delve deeper into Mark than, say, you delved into me during our recording. <laughs> I want to make All this right. a positive experience for you. I'm, I'm, I'm open to that, Michael. It's, it's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. Yep, yep, I'm looking at it. Uh, now, I feel like I'm looking at my own questions. Mm -hmm. There's audio somewhere. Right. I'm, I'm just yeah. sort of reading the transcript, and I don't, I'm not asking anything provocative here. No, no. It went much better. I mean, yeah. you also had more control in a sense. Right. Right. Um, and this is before I had my own podcast uh, where I interview people. So I, I, just glancing at this, it looks like it went fine. Yeah. And it ended, it ended nicely. You, you said pretty much what you said to me and he took it. Uh, are you, you haven't had Mark on, right? No, 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 no. I don't even know if he'd do it. He probably feels like I'm ripping him off by having a, an interview podcast. Uh, I feel like any, if you challenge him, he's going he's to say yes. Oh, he might. Yeah, he might. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Here. This is me quote, quoting me right now. And I basically just said the same thing that I just said to you. I hope the show is a success, meaning his new show, that uh, the Mark Maron show. Would, would, uh, and it, that it brings you more than anything, a level of happiness and serenity that you deserve even more than the professional success. I know I'll be watching. I remain a committed fan of yours. And I wholeheartedly accept all your past apologies and future apologies. 
and offer my own for the shit I will inevitably write about you on Twitter as soon as we get off the phone. Well, (laughs) and he says, well, I'll respond to that. But from a clean slate, I think we should start working towards the next apology as soon as we get off the phone. I, I know I don't speak just for myself when I say I hope you two never completely make up, but oh no, well, uh, and that you keep doing this from time to time. Of course, of course. It's now, now it's now it has defined our relationship, and I think we both enjoy it. There's got to, you know, it, there there is something wonderful that comedians can do to each other, um, which is rag on each other mercilessly. <clears throat> that in any other relationship it would destroy any other relationship but in from a comedian to comedian it's a mark of love i feel like i never you know you've talked about training for running i feel like everything could be sports analogies exist and they're cliches because they make sense mm-hmm. they're they're true and i spent a year you're going you're coming to Cobb soon right yeah yeah i i spent a year doing the circuit in san francisco when there wasn't it was all just shitty shitty cafes and the same guys every night and I'm I'm just a sensitive little girl boy, and I didn't get in shape to hang out with comics. And after a year, I just like <laughs> just I couldn't I couldn't get in shape to take the abuse. You know, I'm like, can't you say you like something I did? No. Yeah. What would be the point of that? Yeah. What would be the point of being supportive? There's there would be none. No point in that. God, I'm just remembering. I I even went to a coach for a few weeks. Who pretty much said be more Jewy. That's weird advice. And that that also was a hallmark of my. You know, I, I went from performance art to trying to, you know, joke punchline, joke punchline. I, I sucked, but he also was no help. No, that, I mean, with advice like that, I'm not surprised he was not a help. He didn't say it in those words. He said maybe some more humor about your ethnicity. I, you know, he was selling a, a product. Yes, he was. What did that cost you? I don't. <laughs> it was in the 90s too much yeah from my bartending and uh, test prep teaching <laughs> jobs at the time you you always talk about being on shows that die quickly are you still are either of the shows you were on recently still uh well the shows that i've been on in the last couple of years are the jim gaffigan show which which is no more uh wet hot american summer which is i don't know if it's if we're going to do anymore i suspect not uh, we just have a new, there's a new season that just came out and another period, uh, which, uh, I don't know if we'll do more or not, but it, it, the new season of that comes out in February. So two of the three are still in existence. I'm going to hit you with two sets of, of five questions. I'm going to call them the, the famous five. All right. First we'll, we'll do the ones I'm just straight up stealing from you. Food. Uh, today tacos. Mm-hmm. What kind of tacos? Um, I'm enamored with any taco, anything that any sort of meat that you can encase in a tortilla uh, and put on, put something else on top, some vegetables some cheese some peppers, what have you. Just any taco by definition, I'm enamored with. Uh, I like I like everything about the taco, but I'm getting particularly uh, choosy about the tortilla. I feel like there's a lot of bad tortillas out there. And I, 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 particularly if you're making them yourself, Mm -hmm. are you talking about making them yourself? Sometimes, sometimes I'm also talking about purchasing, but I made tacos this week 
uh, Bobby Flay, I think, has this pre-made taco sauce that's just great uh, that I use. Um, I also added some other ingredients, but that was great. And the tortillas that I found in my local uh, supermarket were not Mission. Mission makes terrible tortillas. But there's this other one I found, and I don't recall the name, but they were very good. Okay. Uh, I'm more of a burrito person myself. Could be the San Francisco years. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, music? Well, before you call, I've been, I've been uh, just working, and uh, work music for me has been uh, uh, a challenge because I can't have anything with lyrics, and I can't have anything with a beat. So... But I like to have a little something on. So, uh, 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 Brian Eno. Okay. Like music for airports, old Brian Eno? Same, yeah. I can work with a beat. So it doesn't have to be purely ambient like that for me. Uh, book. You can go plural if you... No, I'm going to go with one. I'm reading it now. And I can't say it's a good book. But I'm such a sucker for these kinds of books that not only do I read them, I look forward to reading them. And it's the thing that I probably enjoyed reading the most, even though it's the worst book I've written, uh, read in a while. It's, it's called Jack Dawes by Ken Follett. And it's a World War II uh, caper. Uh, and Follett... I always enjoy and always hate myself for enjoying because it's just this kind of stylized 70s miniseries dialogue. Uh, and he's not a bad writer. I mean, there's, there's like, he's, he's a good descriptive writer. And I mean, his plots are stupid as fuck. It's books like this. But it's enjoyable. It's a summer read. Yeah, I guess. I don't even know what year it came out. Um, years ago, I think. I, I used to read a lot of John Le Carre because it let me not feel quite so guilty for reading the. But John, but he's a great writer. Great writer, yeah, yeah. And it's a thriller and a caper, and a, you probably know what the next question is. I probably do, but I can't think of what we had in a, a movie or a, a TV or movie, yeah. I watch so little. We just look, the only thing I've been enjoying is Game of Thrones, but it's so hacky to say Game of Thrones because everybody already watches it. Wow, how could I be stumped on? <laughs> um, Let me tell you my current three. Yeah. Uh, Better Call Saul. Yeah. Uh, Westworld. That won't cheer you up. Uh, but it's really good. And again, I'm a decade late to the game, but in this time of stress, watch one Parks and Rec. You might be really happy it's like a balm it's like a salve to pour on yourself oh i'm sure i'd like it okay so now you had a chance anything besides game of thrones i'm looking at my netflix to see what i've watched oh i was watching uh, oliver stone's untold history of the united states i do love documentaries and uh you know it's very obviously lefty and left-leaning um but what I like about it is that it presents a counter narrative to American history as we are taught it. And I'm, I'm very much in favor of counter narratives 
and and very much in favor of looking at America from underrepresented viewpoints. So, uh, you know, so you get your Howard Zins of the world and your, and your Noam Chomsky's of the world and um, Oliver Stone's. And, uh, you know, I have a certain sympathy towards the left, although I don't know that I, I don't know that I necessarily identify as a, as a, as a full on lefty. Um, but it's certain, I would say it's worth watching. It's worth, it's worth watching just, just, just to get a different point of view. Miscellaneous. There's two, I have two. One of them is, uh, easily obtainable. One of them is less easily obtainable. The more easily obtainable is just UGG slippers, which I wear uh, in the house and often to the grocery store. I have two pair, and they wear out after about a year, so you have to re replace them. Um, but they're they're lined with UGG stuff, you know, sheepy stuff, and they're just very comfortable. I I I, I even though I could now walk around barefoot because I have uh, crystal clear toenails. I, I prefer wearing the Ugg slippers. The nice. other thing that I do on a daily basis now is start my morning uh, with uh, a soak in the hot tub, which my wife and I put in when we moved into our new house. We have a hot tub, and I find it, uh, I use it as a way to clear my mind and and start as a way to start thinking about the the, the creative work ahead for the day. Uh, something about warm water and bubbles uh, and nature all combined to make a fantastic start of the day experience in the hot tub. In San Francisco, uh, I lived in a two little two-story Victorians next to each other, and we were all friends, and we shared a backyard, and somebody gave us a hot tub when they were moving. And not only did it do that for me, it also, as someone with body issues like you, <laughs> uh, made me much more comfortable just being naked in front of people and being like, we all look like fucking people. Uh, all right. Before I give you the, the other five that I've made up, just for fun, I'm going to tell you the things that people recommended me to check out of yours, just so you know what people still... You probably... Some of them are obvious. Monkey torture. A McSweeney's piece. Have you ever eaten a baby from uh, millions of years ago? $240 worth of pudding. Several people picked. Uh, I'm, I'm more of the... Uh, the monkey torture, Python-esque kind of guy. Uh, and if you if you look for monkey torture, the parrot sketch comes on after on YouTube. Oh, that's nice. So you you are you are yes, in in good company there. Yeah, very good company. Here's a piece that nowadays is was hard. If I had a slave, if I had a slave, I always thought was it's the kind of thing I liked doing, and and the and and the uh, the premise is. If I had a slave, what a good slave owner I would be, and how kind and generous uh, I would be as a slave owner. And there's something very funny to me about the awful person presenting himself as the good person, the bad guy presenting himself as the good guy. Like that, that kind of thing I always find funny. And uh, I used to perform it uh, in my stand-up. Always, always knowing that it could easily go wrong, and that uh, people could could turn on me very, very quickly, uh, and they didn't. Some, 
I'm sure I'm sure some people in the audience were like, oh, no, 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 no. And nobody ever approached you after. No, no. I mean, it was clearly in bad taste. I wouldn't do it now just because the sensitivity to racial issues in particular. And and I'm very clear and I'm not very clear, but I I purposely don't don't make it clear, like what kind of slave I'm not necessarily saying, like, you know, it could be anybody. It could be anybody. I, I, yeah, that, that excuse isn't going to work that way. <laughs> in my mind, in my mind, that was always uh, a, a justification. I'm not saying it's a good one, but I'm, that was always a justification. Um, but uh, no, I wouldn't do it now because the, because the, there's just too much racial sensitivity and, and correctly. So, I mean, it's, it's just gotten bad out there and, and I just don't want to, there's just no reason to stir that hornet's nest at the moment. Okay, so now my, uh, the, ja the Jamie Five for you are, and I think this might be hard for you to think of because you might be like, but I'm going to give you five things and ask what your favorite work of yours in this mode is. Like what, if you can remember, okay, from a TV, a scene, a bit, from a TV series or movie. I like the... I'm not going to pick a single thing because it, I don't know that I can, but I, I always really liked the Stella television show. We did one season of it on Comedy Central. I thought it was really innovative and funny. Um, nobody watched it, and it was unceremoniously dumped. But uh, I always I thought that the writing on it was really strong, and the 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 ambition of it was pretty grand and uh i was really proud of it podcast episode or episodes um just as a moment from how to be amazing i did ask and he did answer uh i asked david sedaris how much money he makes and he did tell me i heard that i was astounded at how much money he makes i i almost didn't uh because I wanted to feel really good about you. I didn't want to listen to your Sedaris episode and think it was better and be sad than mine. Like, <laughs> they're, they're just different, I'll tell myself. Of course they're different. He was wonderful. So gracious. He's a great guy. He sent me a postcard. Yes, he sends postcards. If someone were to start with one of your books, which one? A grown-up. Um, I guess you're not doing it right as probably the best place to start it's yeah it's a it's a it's a memoir about relationships and uh, my relationships anyway and uh it's probably a very good introduction to me and last uh a stand-up bit or, or you know or something shortish that is you you know encapsulable well at the moment i'm telling a story um that i started developing maybe close to maybe close to a year ago, maybe less, about having a sandwich made at Subway. And it's now stretch, It's now getting to 15 or 20 minutes of me describing having a sandwich made at Subway. And uh, really, that's all that happens. And my, my, my dream would be to get it to a place where uh, the entire hour of my set is me describing having this single sandwich made at Subway, nothing would would make me happier than than that is the entire hour long performance. So the world doesn't know this yet. I mean, except at live shows, it's is it 
I, I told a very abbreviated version of it on Colbert. And, uh, but if you, if you see me live, you'll see a much longer version. Of it. I like it when you go long, uh, with stuff. So look forward to it. Uh, the last thing I have is that a guy about 15 younger years, younger than me, who I know kind of a wise ass prankster of a guy saw my Facebook post and really, he really said it like four times. He wanted me to tell you, Jimmy Crucis in Philadelphia loves you. I'm taking that sentiment from Jimmy Crucis and uh, welcoming it into my heart. And I can't return it because I don't know Jimmy, but I certainly will return a general love to the universe uh, in which Jimmy is included. Any last words on fame that I might not have thrown at you? It's not worth it's not it's 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 unsatisfying. Thank you very much. Oh, Michael, are we good? I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, man. You too. Thanks so much. Bye, Jamie. Bye bye. If you'd like to find out when Michael Ian Black is coming to your town to talk to you for an hour about ordering a Subway sandwich. His website is, as you might expect, michaelianblack.com. I'll have the links uh, to that Gothamist interview and the full-length uh, WTF podcast episode with Michael and Mark. It's wonderful, horrible stuff. I, I love it. And you can find that and all of our other episodes at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the numerals 15-M-I-N-U-T-E-S. J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R dot com. Ed Patnode's The Engineer and Christian Kandari made the music. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.